Thanks for listening to the Oasis City Church podcast. We're located in Boise, Idaho, but wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you and empowers you to take a step towards living a life fully devoted to following Jesus. chapter 4. Go there with me in your Bibles. Turn there, James chapter 4. You can scroll there if you have your Instagram Bible, you know, your online Bible, version. James chapter 4. Uh, last year, about this exact same time, kind of mid-November, end of November, we took our family on our very first trip with our kids to Disneyland, right? Disneyland is an amazing, magical place. They, they know when to put Christmas decorations up, right? November 1st, the right time, right? Who put your Christmas tree up? Raise your hand. Who did not put your Christmas tree up? Man, you have less joy in your lives. I promise you. I promise you. You, you. you put that tree up and you're going to smile when you walk in through the door. It's got the Christmas lights on. Come on. Throw Mariah Carey on there. Let her sing to you. Come on. It's great. So we go to, we go to Disney and uh, go to the Christmas parades. We do all the Christmas things, which is you know, half the fun. We high five Mickey. We dap up Donald. Like we do the things. We're enjoying our time. And as we're at Disneyland, we do all the classic rides, right? Like just the, the ones that are the staples you got to do. Uh, it's a wonderful life, like all of that. Um, then one of my favorite things was going to the new area that they didn't have when I was a kid. And that's Star Wars land. Oh, baby. Come on. We got some Star Wars nerds in here. Yes. Yeah, I'm back with you, bro. And uh, so I am a major Star Wars fan. I'm the guy who's like walking in like, man, already like, like I'm so excited. My kids are excited, but they're more excited because they're like, why is dad so happy? He's just like, I'm like, guys, this is a lifelong dream. Okay. And I'm walking through and I'm like saying, what's up to Boba Fett and Chewie's there, like the whole crew. And so as we're walking through Star Wars land, we, we, they're like, hey, let's go on a ride. Cause I wanted to like go build a lightsaber. My kids are like, hey, let's go, let's go on a ride. And so there's a ride called Smuggler's Run. Okay. Now Smuggler's Run, just so you have some context, is a ride based around the original Millennium Falcon, which is the ship that Han Solo piloted in episodes four, five, and six. Okay. This is a big deal for Star Wars people. All right. This is like classic group with my dad watching these movies. And uh, you walk through this like little aisle, almost like a little uh, hallway that leads into the Millennium Falcon, this big spaceship. And you get to drive it. And so I'm sitting there like, I'm gonna fulfill a lifelong dream. I'm gonna drive the Millennium Falcon. I'm like Han Solo himself. I'm gonna get in there. It's gonna be awesome. You know, it can go, it's crazy fast. So I'm thinking, oh, this is gonna be awesome. So then there's four different roles you can get. So you can be chosen to be the engineer. You can be chosen to be the gunner, the pilot or the co-pilot. And so I, I, I'm assuming, of course, they're gonna let the adult be the pilot. So I'm standing there waiting for my assignment and the guy goes, looks at us, he got, we got three, okay, you got one more, pull this other kid in there. They're like, okay, four. They're like, okay, you, sir, you're the engineer. I said, no, 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 sir. I'm meant to be the pilot. He goes, no, you're in the engineer seat. You're the engineer, uh, you, Arrow, you're the gunner. And he looks at my three-year-old son at the time, he's four now, but three, three-year-old son and goes, all right, you, sir, you are the, you're the pilot. And I'm going, that is a bad plan, sir. He can't even see the steering. He can't even see over it. Like, this is not a good plan. And so he ends up letting my three-year-old son drive the Millennium Falcon. Would you uh, show that video for us? All right. Better be faster, All right, Arrow. Ed, you got to fly us. Push the flashing button to take off. Push the flashing button. Okay, fly us. And that's how about most of the ride went for us. It was just kind of crashing and burning and my three-year-old going, woo, woo. Like he's just loving it. He's living his best life, crashing, turning, bumps all over the place. He pulled the joystick up and we'd go up, he'd push it down and we'd nosedive. And he really felt like he was in control. But even though he was flying the ship and crashing into asteroid fields and into other ships, you know what's funny is we'd get to the end and we'd still reach our final destination. We'd, we'd get to the end. We'd actually still end up in our intended destination. And no matter how many times we rode that ride, no matter how many times we shift seats and someone else piloted the ship, it didn't really matter who was piloting the ship. We always seemed to reach our intended destination and complete smugglers run. Didn't matter. And, and what's funny is, even with all these bumps and crashes, man, we have things that we want to do in our lives, we want to accomplish, 
We have five-year plans. We have goals. We got things that we want to do in our lives. But how many of God also has a plan for our lives? And sometimes we want to drive in life and think we think we're in control. We think we're piloting the ship and we think we're the captain of our ship and we're charting our own course and we're going to go this direction or that direction and we think we're flying this thing. Woo! And we try to turn left and we might have some bumps and some bruises, but somehow we always seem to reach our intended destination. It's because God is really in control. Friends, control is an illusion. We think that we can try to hammer it left and all you're gonna do is cause a more bumpy ride. You're gonna cause you more pain, you're gonna cause more wreckage, but, but ultimately God's gonna get you where he wants you to go. Today, I wanna talk to you about control. And specifically, I wanna talk to you about this question or come at you from the angle of this question. I don't wanna come at you, but if I do, I'm sorry. Who is in control of your life? That's the question for you today. Who is in control of your life? And so we're in a series here at Oasis called The Book of James, where, uh, like I said, if I was to give it another title, it'd be How to Live. And so we've been talking about how to live based on the book of James. And it's been walking us through all these different things. And uh, if you don't know, James is the half-brother of Jesus. This uh, book of James was written in about 45 AD, marking it as one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. Uh, it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very short uh, phrases, wisdom speeches, like short metaphors for beautiful, like easy to preach. Like, I love this book because it is like every line of the Bible in, in, in the book of James. Not every line of the Bible is easy to preach. Every line of the book of James, easy to preach. Uh, it's just set up in a really f- a nice flow. And so just to recap last week, last week we talked about two types of wisdom. The first kind being a, a, a demonic wisdom, a, a ungodly wisdom, and the second kind being a heavenly wisdom. And so there's two different types of wisdom. There's a wisdom that's from the world, uh, 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 this kind of success that's defined by the world as, hey, do whatever you want, seek whatever you want, get whatever you want, like that's success. Like do, being able to have and do whatever you want. That's the world's definition of success. When God would define heavenly wisdom and heavenly success and greatness differently, he defines greatness as service. And so he would tell us that, that real success is really looking like this. It's, it's obedience to God and submission to him. It's service to other people. It's giving our lives, not, not filling our lives with things, but using and leveraging everything we have for others to draw them closer to Jesus. And so now we're gonna dive into this, this, this new thing on control. And really, this is going to end our series um, because we have some guest speakers, some of the things lined up. We're going to actually come back to James 5 later on in some one-off messages. Uh, but we're going to actually go through all of James 4 today, the entire chapter. So I hope you like Bible because we got a lot of it today. But we're here in the room today because we want to worship God, right? That's why we're here. But the problem is, is that deep down, many of us don't really want to worship God. Deep down, we don't really want to worship God. Deep down, for many of us, we want to be God. And you may be like, I don't know about that. But you do. We prove it every single day because we fight with him for control. God, I, I want to go right. And God says, go left. But you're like, but I want to go right. And so we get in these, these fights with God where God's saying, hey, we need to go this direction. And you're grabbing the joystick from him and trying to yank it out of his hands and say, no, I want to go right. Like, like you're like, I want to go left towards this relationship. And God says, no, I'm calling you right towards a season of singleness. So you can get right with the Father and right with your relationship with God before you need to be filled by a relationship with someone else. Hey, hey, you want to go on, on, the, on, on this left turn towards drunken Friday nights with your friends hanging out at the bar, tossing them back, 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 back. And God's telling you turn right towards self-control and towards sobriety, having a sober mind. We, we want to turn left towards like the fancy new car. It's two years newer. It's got the nice windshield glass to toss the whole top. It's got the upgraded Bose sound system and the nice, you know, 20-inch rims and good tires and the new paint job. It's nice. It's two years newer than what I got. I want to go towards that. And God's saying turn right towards generosity, towards using your excess and the wealth that he's entrusted to you to, to bless others, to provide to be generous, to, to, to reflect the generosity of our Father towards other people. He says, turn left, and we want to go right. We turn right, and he wants to go left. It's this, it's this back and forth with fight for control. And it's funny because it's like, if we want to turn right, and God's like, yeah, turn right, we're like, woo, praise you, Father, you are good. You are holy and right. You are a strong tower, my refuge, my fortress in my day of need. You are just God. You and then when we want to turn left and he says no turn right we're like do you even love me 
Do you care? Do you hear my prayers? Like, are you there? Are you driving this ship? Are you, is your hand on the wheel? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. Because we want to go left. And God says, turn right. See, to follow God is to celebrate when we want to go right. And God says, yeah, let's turn right. And it's to trust when we want to go left. And God says, no, we're turning right. That's the, that's the, the, the relationship here is it's to trust that he's gonna get us to our intended destination. That's when we see things begin to shift, is when we trust. You see, God has a plan that he desires to accomplish through us. He desires to use your life and to accomplish his plans through you. He's inviting you in to this plan. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice this, it doesn't say saved by good works. It says, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Your translation may say, for you to walk out or for you to walk in. Listen, he has a plan for us. And today, just to give you our plan, our plan is to move through all of James chapter four. We're gonna go through as much as we possibly can. And we're gonna ask God to to help because I've been late on the last two services and I promise I'm gonna try not to be late this time. But just to recap, all of James 4 really is, is basically a recap. So now, mind you, James is one continuous letter. We're breaking it up into these little segmented parts, and we're talking through them week by week and kind of going chapter by chapter, section by section. But really, this is one continuous thought that James has. And so James 4 is kind of circular writing, calling back to the beginning, saying, hey, these things we already talked about, producing these things, whether that's how to, how to walk through trials, hard times. He's talking about humility. He's talking about submission. All these things that he's already talked about in James 1, 2, and 3, we're now bringing up again in James 4, and he's kind of recapping it in his writing. So we're going to zoom in on a few things and zoom out on a few other things. And we're gonna move quickly through some things and slower through others. Sound good? Yeah. James 4, 1 7 through 17. I'm reading out of CSB. It says this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask and you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, the language that James chooses to use in the first few verses here is very interesting. It's strong metaphorical language. He's saying, hey, what causes wars and fights among you? Now, he's not talking about literal wars here. He, this is written to the church at large, the, the body of Christ, believers everywhere, right? And so he's saying, hey, amongst believers, there are wars, there are factions, there are divisions that should not be there. What is causing this division? What's causing this fighting, this quarreling among you? And he's starting to highlight to them, hey, these disputes, these things you're fighting about are actually not worth fighting about. Because there are some things that are worth kind of getting, getting a little intense about, right? Like good doctrine, good theology, making sure that the, the gospel is the gospel. That's stuff you fight for. But this, he's saying, hey, you're having these petty, silly, ridiculous pr- disputes that are so crazy. Like just, it's, it's all about preferences. And what's funny is that was so prevalent at that time in the church, and it's still so prevalent today, isn't it? Where we will let our preferences rob us of joy in our church. Where all of a sudden we come from different backgrounds, like every one of us, every person here has different preferences. Some of you grew up in a more traditional or liturgical church. Some of you grew up in, in an even more charismatic church than us. And some of you grew up with different traditions. Maybe some of you have, you know, the lights were on, the walls were white, right? There's windows in the place and it's not like a dark hole like us, right? It's like, there's different things. And you're like, well, I like the lights at this level. And I like the noise this high and I like the noise this low and I like it at 67 degrees in here and I like it at 74 and I have these preferences. Hey, this church, man, they, get, they use little communion cups with like a little cracker on top. That ain't really communion. Real communion's bread and wine or is it ain't it? You know what I mean? Like we all have preferences. We have things that we're picky about, things that we want to just jump in at or we could just worship God and understand that it's not about our preferences. And then we're all just here to worship him and, and we're gonna do it to the best of our abilities. And these things are like, whether the walls are black or the walls are white or whether the lights are this high or this low, can you worship God? Can you exalt his name? Can you praise him? Can you lift it up? That's, that's the goal. So let's not get distracted by these silly little things. You ever been around a person that's really strongly opinionated? Maybe it's your mother-in-law, right? If you're sitting next to your mother-in-law, don't look, just... That guy's crazy. I don't know what he's talking about, right? 
that song, <laughs> up on the front row, they're laughing up here. But <laughs> let me just say, really strongly opinionated people are not super fun to be around. The my way or the highway, my voice matters more than yours. Hey, I have an idea. That doesn't matter because here's my idea. Like that person who's always just kind of interrupting, coming in saying, no, the, I don't care what you have to say. Here's what I have to say. Here's my opinion. And this is what matters, my way or the highway. They're not fun people. It, it kind of reminds me of like that bully from middle school that's always looking for a fight. You know that person? Like they're always bored, just unreasonable, looking for a fight. It, it's the person who's driving down the road and they're like driving and looking in the rearview mirror and there's ca- cars piled up everywhere behind them. And they're like, man, there's some bad drivers out here. And then they realize they're going the wrong way down the highway, right? And they're just diverting traffic, just like all around them. And you're the common denominator in all the wreckage in your relationships. That's what James is referring to here. He's trying to say, hey, this is a a problem. And so he's using this language, the strong language of of desire. And he's talking about how uh, you have desire and you don't have, because, or you murder and you covet, but you cannot obtain. And again, it's this, like war, he's using this term of murder. It, some commentators will say that there maybe were some zealous Christians that were actually killing people over this stuff, which is wild. But uh, most would say, no, this is actually just more like strong metaphorical language that he's using, kind of like he's using the imagery of war. He's using the imagery of murder here to say it's more of like a strong anger or like a hatred because of these simple disagreements. And so, so that's what he's referring to here is more likely the strong anger or hatred because they were not getting what they wanted. And, and the reason they're not getting what they wanted is because they were asking, he said, with impure motives. Now, what they were doing is, if you remember from last week, we talked about two types of wisdom. Really, the first kind of wisdom, that, that satanic wisdom, the kind that is uh, ungodly and worldly, James talked about last week how, how there was selfish desire or selfish ambition and bitter envy in that, right? So if you look at the request that they're making here, James is again kind of calling back to that saying, hey, you have impure motives. These things are laced with impure, uh, unholy, selfish ambition and bitter envy. This is not good. This is not okay. You're operating with the wrong kind of wisdom. And so James is calling them out and saying, hey guys, even your prayers are selfish. And hear me, this is not to say you can't ask God for things that you desire. Like, sure, like ask God for whatever you want. But in the middle of making your requests and your supplications known to God, ask him what he wants. As you tell him what you want, why don't you just take a moment and say, God, here's what I think I should do in my marriage with my children, with this job, with this move, with this next thing. But what would you have me do? Not my will, but yours be done in my life. That's, that's the heart posture that James is trying to call us to. He's saying, hey, it's okay to pray for whatever you want. Just make sure you ask God what he wants. Number one, if you're taking notes, when we are in control, we follow our desires, which leads to disaster. When we are in control, we follow our own desires, which leads to disaster. If we just go through this world chasing everything we want, how many of you know that's gonna end up in a really bad place? You ever tried just eating whatever you want? Yeah, it doesn't end up real well. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, that, that is, it's a dangerous game, friendo. Don't play that game, all right? Now, here's what I would say. If you just run after these things, I want this, I want that, I'm gonna take this, I'm gonna take that, I'm gonna go after this because it's what my heart desires, it's going to lead you to disaster. It's gonna lead you to a place where life will not go well for you. You have to have something that is in control of your life that's beyond your own desires. A couple years ago, uh, Arrow got a drone for Christmas because I'm a good dad, you know. You ever get your kids stuff that you actually want? Tell me the truth. Raise your hand. Moms are like, I wanted the easy bake oven. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so it's one of those things. I, I, I got in this drone, super cool little drone. We're playing with it. It's like fun for both of us, right? That's it's like why we take them to Disneyland too. So I want to go to Star Wars land. And so we're, we're enjoying this with our kids and we're, we're having fun in the backyard. We're playing with this little drone, this little thing. It's, you ever seen them? They got like four little blades, little, little, little propellers and like a little helicopter. And so we're driving in the backyard, having fun. And Arrow's like, let me, let me, let me fly. Let me fly. Come on, dad. Let me see it. Let me see it. Let me see it. Right? And so I'm like, okay, here, let me, let me coach you, let me help you. And so I'm like, you, you've got this way to go right, this way to go left, this way to go back. You can do a little flip if you go like this. And so I'm trying to teach him and show him. And he goes, dad, I don't need your help. 
Parents ever have your kids say that? The first time your kid says that, you're like, oh, you don't need my help. Your heart breaks. After a while, you're just like, let's just see how this goes, right? You just start to like, your, your perspective begins to shift. You're like, you'll be asking me in a second. And so I give him the controller. He's flying and he's like, woo And I'm sitting there like, hey, bud, don't do that. And he's like, I know what to do. I know what to do. I know what to do. And he starts flying up. So it's like, it gets a little higher, goes above our roof, gust of wind. That thing gone, gone with the wind. Like it's, it's, it's all the way gone. And so this thing crashes down, way down the road, way in front of us, because he had flown it too high. The wind gust took it and that thing is not a heavy drone, took off, crash. You know what's funny is we do this with God all the time though. Where all of a sudden we're like, hey, God, let you know, I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I don't need your help. I don't need your coaching. Don't tell me what to do. Don't direct me. Don't tell me. I know what to do. I know the direction I'm supposed to go. I know the decision I'm supposed to make. I don't need this. I don't leave me be. I don't need your help. Stop telling me how to do it. Let me fly. We want control of our lives. That is, that is the human condition. We want Control. Now, why? Because we want to control outcomes. But you know when you step into the position of trying to control, control outcomes, you know what that is, right? You're stepping into God's job. Your job is not outcomes. Your job is obedience. God's job is outcomes. So whenever we step into the place and we step outside obedience and we step into trying to control or manipulate outcomes, what we are doing is stepping into the role of God in our lives and saying, I am God and I will make the decisions. And the problem with control is it doesn't ever stop. Someone who's obsessed with control will always be obsessed with control in that if you try to stop this thing called control in our lives, you, you think I'm just going to control my life. But the problem is, is that if you can't control the people you're connected to and the people around you, all of a sudden you feel unsafe and anxious because you're unable to control the outcomes around you. And so you then have to manipulate and control other people near you in order for you to feel safe and empowered and in control. And you may say, well, Pastor Lane, that's just my personality type. Like, I'm just kind of a controlling person. That's just who I am. That's fine, but that's not who Jesus is. But that's just who I am. I know that. That's fine. But we're called to conform into his image, not ours, right? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're supposed to imitate him, and therefore, Jesus is not controlling. That's not who he is. So we're not going to control other people. We're not going to manipulate other people people. It's not who Jesus is, so change. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Again, he starts out with a strong language. He says, you adulterous people, Let's put it into our modern-day vernacular so it makes sense. You unfaithful cheaters. Don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? So he, he goes straight into this, this really intense language. He, say, he says, hey, whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You unfaithful cheaters. I don't know about you, but I would really hate to be made an enemy of God. You know there's never been an enemy that he's faced that he has not flattened? He has never lost a battle to this day. He is God Almighty, the Lord of heaven's armies. And for you to set yourself up as an enemy of God, friends, that is a dangerous place to be. And so we have to be so incredibly cautious in these moments. And I have a friend who calls this, this idea of friendship with the world, right? That's how you become an enemy of God is by being friends with the world, by having a relationship with the world. I have a friend that calls this functional atheism. I thought that was a, a genius term, functional atheism. When we proclaim to be followers of Jesus and say we have a relationship with God, say that we have trusted in Jesus for our salvation, we believe we're going to die and go to heaven and spend eternity with God, we believe God is in control, and yet we live life like he's not. We say it, we come here on Sunday, we say, God, you're in control, but then the rest of the week we live like he's not even real. That's functional atheism. To live your life in such a way that you're not focused on heaven. You're not focused on eternity. You're not driven by eternity. You're focused on here and now. You're in fo focus on getting yours, on enlarging your tent, enlarging your territory, growing your brand, growing your name, growing your fame, growing your influence, growing your bank account, growing your own influence and not the kingdoms, not God's. So we spend our lives living as if God 
isn't even there. We act like he is on Sundays and, you know, we put the Instagram bio in there and put the verse. But then we live so frivolously, like there's not an afterlife, like there's not a heaven and a hell, like there's not eternity with God and eternal separation from God. And, and so we just get stuck. That, that, friends, is what is functional atheism. Atheism is this worldview. There's nothing after. And functionally, many Christians are living an atheistic worldview where they confess with their mouths, but their lives say something different. Verse five, or do you think that it's without reason the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Now to be clear here, the spirit of God is not jealous of you. Please don't get so conceited as I think God is jealous of you. He is not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. He's jealous for us. Let, let me put it this way. Do you remember that language that he opens up with here? You adulterous people, you unfaithful cheaters. He's calling back to that saying, hey, God is envious for you. He's jealous for you. Why? Because you have taken on another lover. You have taken, the lover of your soul is God, but you have taken on this other lover called the world. Can you imagine the pain? For those of you that are married, imagine the pain, and maybe some of you have even experienced this, of watching a spouse step out on you. To have someone that committed in covenant saying, I, I will love you, I will cherish you, I will hold you dear, I will protect your heart for all of my life. And they say, I'm with you, and then they go and sleep with somebody else. They take on another lover, but then they gaslight you to your face saying, no, I'm faithful to you, I love you, I want to serve you, I want to be with you. And then they go back five days a week to this other lover. But then on the weekends, they're like, man, go to Bible study. Go to church. That's what James is referring to here. And I know that's strong and that probably evokes some feelings. That's the point. That's the point. This is how God feels every single day. When we say that we love him, we say we want to serve him, we say, man, we're Christian, we believe, we believe in God, we, we, we have a relationship with Jesus, then we leave this place and we, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we lust, we, we slander, we gossip, we, 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 we get obsessed with greed and materialism, we chase these other things that the world dangles in front of us and says, go after this, and we do it. But then we come back on Sunday, God, but I love you. Friends, this, this is evil. This, this should not be, and that's what James is referring to here. This text is saying that the Spirit is jealous for us because we have stepped out on God and taken on this other lover. We pursued the things of the world. We've become enraptured by its fleeting beauty and pleasures that are temporary and, and, and just small moments, and we've traded eternity for it. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. God, I, I just, I don't have time to read my Bible. I'm, I'm I'm tired, you know, I gotta work, I gotta make money, I gotta provide for my family. You said that's important too, you know, man's gotta provide, I gotta do my thing, I can't read the Bible. God, God you know, you, your word, you also talked about community and, and the pastor talked about community and so I know, I gotta go out with my, I can't spend extended time in prayer, I gotta go out with my friends, I gotta have good community. Every single day, God watches us step out on him. Imagine every day watching your spouse leave to go be with somebody else and knowing what they're doing. It will crush you. And every single day, that's what God sees. Go to verse six with me, James 4, 6. But he gives greater grace. Somebody should say amen. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Again, this word resists here is as if it's a military resistance. In the Greek, what you'll see is it's almost as if, like you could say that uh, when you are prideful, you set yourself up in resistance to God. There is a, a heavenly resistance against pride. It's like you are standing before the, all of the, the hosts of the Lord's armies. He's just here with them and you are setting yourself up in resistance to heaven's armies. Pride does not mix with God. He says, but he gives grace to what? The humble. 
Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Hope you enjoyed church today. God bless you. Have a good night. <laughs> Y'all are like, <laughs> okay, that's a confusing verse, right? You, like I read that and I went, that, that, God, that makes no sense. You're a good father and you want me to be sad? Like I, I don't, this doesn't make sense, but let me just pause for a second and just break down this text for just one moment here. This last verse could be confusing, but think about it this way. When you finally realize your need for a savior, when you finally see your sin for what it is, which is wicked and demonic and evil and an attempt to take you away from your love, when you finally realize you have been an unfaithful cheater, that you have stepped out on your covenant, someone who says, I love you, I'm with you, I'll do anything for you, I'll lay down my life for you, I'll give it all, and you finally realize, man, I have done wrong, I've done something shameful, I've ran the other direction, I've chased these other things, and I'm left dry, and I'm left hurting, I'm left broken, and you're sitting there and you realize, what you've done. You realize that sin has caused this separation, this division. You've realized that you're broken and you're in need of a savior. When you hit that point, I'm telling you, your heart's going to break. Because it's all fun and games when you're living in the world. Man, it's just a drunk Friday night. It's just sleeping with somebody else. It's no big deal. It's fun. It's good memories. It's good laughs. And then someday, you'll finally come to realize that the things that you have been continually entertained by are the very things that nailed Jesus to the cross. The things that we have given our lives to be entertained by, to run after, are the very things that Christ had to go to the cross for in your place so you didn't have to. And you've been entertained by it. And you're finally gonna step back and realize like, oh my God, what have I done? Lord, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Please cleanse me. Please heal me. And that's what he's talking about here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's saying, hey, be, be, be sorry because you realize finally the level, the pravity of your sin, the level of your brokenness and your need for a savior. But love, but Jesus loved us so much that he came and died for us. And it says that while we were still yet sinners, while we were still yet unfaithful cheaters, he loved us. Go to verse 10 with me. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So let's just summarize these last few verses. It, this is gonna make it easy and digestible for you. Think about it like this. When it comes to the devil, if you come near the devil, he is going to devour you. Like he, he will eat your lunch. Like the devil, if you, if you give him a foothold, he is not gonna be content with the foothold. He's kicking down your door and letting in every evil and filthy thing in the world into your life. If you give the devil a little foothold, you better believe he's gonna fight to tear that door open and bring in everything that will destroy your life. Everything that will distract you, everything that will call you away from God, everything that will make you think that you have everything and realize you have nothing at the end. That's his goal is to destroy you. But if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, if you humble yourself before God, listen, as you draw near to God, as you humble yourself, the devil will flee from you, flee from your life. He'll leave you alone. He doesn't want to be anywhere near the Father. Number two, if you're taking notes, when we give up control, our humble heart has God's help. So humility is key in giving up control. We've we really been working on this at our house. My, my oldest son, Arrow, he's seven. He is a typical firstborn, thinks he's like the third parent in the relationship. So uh, it's like, hey, uh, Kaya, don't do that. And Ezzy, you need to do this. And you need to pick up your room. And you need help with it. I'm like, dude, we got this, man. Like, but he's, he's, he just wants to help so badly. He wants to be seen as mature. He really does not like being treated like he's a little kid. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been like, around a kid like that. It's like, he doesn't want the, hey, buddy, how is kids church? He's like, shake my hand like a man. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's who my son is. And I'm like, yeah, you're going to be a CEO. You're going to run the world, boy. But here's, it's not right now. <laughs> it's like, mom and, mom and I got this. And so we got a puppy recently. He's doing the same thing with the puppy. And, and so what I had to teach him and what I'm still actively trying to teach him is this, that hey, it's okay to ask for help. See, my son, he, he, he thinks that it's a sign of immaturity or being a little kid. 
If he asks for help, if he asks for someone to come and, and to coach and to, to, to direct, he's like, man, I, I just don't want to be seen as immature. And so I've had to step back and teach him, hey, son, it's actually a sign of maturity that you would stop and discern and recognize, hey, I can't do this on my own and I need some help in my life. That, that's what the wise do. That's what the mature do. That's what people of wisdom do is they recognize that they can't do something on their own and they ask somebody that knows how. They ask for help. And, and how many know it's like, as a father, I'm not like, yeah, boy, I don't have time for you. Like, I don't know, I, I can't help you. No, 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 I'm, a, I, I'm like, dude, I, I would love to help you. I'll help you with your math. I'll help you with your video game. I'll help you with your Lego. Like, I would love to help. It's like, it's what a good father does. They help their children. And so we think that God doesn't want to help us. And it's so funny because even as adults, we oftentimes think in the same way that somehow it's immature to ask for help. And so we sit in the dark and we wrestle this addiction and we wrestle this struggle and we have these marriage problems and we have these things and we don't want to bring it to the light. We don't want to invite help because we don't want to be seen as immature. We don't want to be seen as someone who he needs help. We want to be independent. We want to be, you know, the person that's a self-starter and doesn't need anyone's help. But we were created for help. God said it's not good that man should be alone when he created Adam. And so he created Eve and he called her a helper. We were made to have help. We need to ask the Father for help. It's, 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 it's what we were made to do. My answer is always, buddy, I'd love to help. And that's God's answer to us. Son, daughter, I would love to help you. A pastor friend of mine says, it, says this, if dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. If dependence is the goal, then weakness is an advantage. In other words, if God wants us to be dependent on him, it's actually to our advantage that we're weak. That we come to him and say, God, we're weak. We can't do it without you. We can't save ourselves. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't do enough good things. We need your grace. We need your kindness. And it's in our weakness that he is shown strong. It's in our weakness. And you might be saying, well, well why would God help me, Pastor? You just said we're, we're unfaithful cheaters and, and we're not good. And it's like, no, I, first of all, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we. But what I'm saying is this. Because you, you're sitting there probably wondering, why would God help me? If, if I'm an unfaithful cheater, if I've done these things, if I've ran away, I've chased these other pleasures, chased the world, took on this, why would God want to help me? God's probably mad at me. And I want you to know, I remember being 17 years old and hearing this for the first time. God is not mad at you. Do not believe the lie. God is not mad at you. He is madly in love with you. And he's mad that sin pulled you away from him. If God was mad at you, listen, you don't chase down somebody that you're, you're mad at, unless you're trying to like beat them down or something. But, don't. but you don't chase someone down who you're mad at. You're like, let them go. Be gone. I don't need you in my life. But God's chasing us down. The love of God continues to pursue us. Why? Because he wants us back. He's saying, hey, I know you've been unfaithful. I know you cheated. I know you went the other direction, but I love you. And I want to make it work. And I want to reconcile this relationship. And I'm going to be faithful even if you're faithless. And I'm going to continue to pursue you even in your sin, even in your brokenness. I'm going to run after you because I love you. God's not mad at you, friend. He is madly in love with you. And the love of God is chasing you down today, knocking on your door again, saying, I'm still here for you. And you can run as far and as fast as you can, but you cannot outrun the love of God for your life. He loves you. It's because of his great grace, because of his love, that he chases you down. And he, see, he enjoys showing mercy. God loves showing mercy. He loves showing grace. It's who he is in this character. It, it is literally who he is. 2 Corinthians 5.18 and verse 19 says this. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to who? To us. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Micah 7 uh, verse 18 says this, who is a God like you forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in faithful love. I think that word right there, that last two words, that is the, the epitome of who God is. He is faithful love. He is faithful love. This perfectly describes who he is to his church. He is faithful love. Go to verse 11 with me. James 4, verse 11. Don't criticize. Some translations will say slander one another. 
brothers and sisters, anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver and a judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want to be very clear about something here. This is not referring to judging one another's behavior. We are actually called to do that, believe it or not. I can prove it to you from Scripture. Like you might say, well, Tupac said only God can judge me. Well, that ain't in the Bible, okay? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we actually are called to help hold each other accountable to a righteous life. That if one, if one person calls themselves a believer yet continues in continual and habitual sin, we are not even supposed to eat with that person. We're supposed to wash our hands and cast that person out for the destruction of their flesh. Like we're not even supposed to eat with that person. So, so if you call yourself a believer and yet you choose to continue in habitual sin, I'm not talking about you make a mistake and you repent. I'm talking about you know it's wrong, you know it's evil, you know God spoke against it, yet you're going to say you're a follower of Jesus and continue to do that? May it not be so. And 1 Corinthians 5 says we are to hold each other to that, to that standard of accountability, that we would help each other out in this way. Proverbs says the wounds of a friend are faithful. And so if you are a believer and you see another believer acting in a way that is damaging you can approach them and say, hey, man, I love you. And because the wounds of a friend are faithful, I'm going I'm to address this with you. This behavior, this thing you're doing, this action you're taking is not God's best for your life. It, it's sin. It's wicked. It, it's going to take you astray. And I'm just letting you know, I would love to walk with you to help you see freedom, help you see healing in this area. But, but this is not right. It shouldn't be so. This is the Matthew 18 process that we would go to a brother or a sister and come with this issue and say, hey, you're living in a way that's destructive and it's not honoring Christ. You're, you're confessing Christ with your mouth, but your actions are saying that you don't want to follow him. Where's, where's, where's the gap here? And we can start to have those conversations. So that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about here like, hey, that thing is not good that you're doing. Like judgment here is not talking about, hey, that's a bad behavior. The judgment that James is speaking of is, hey, you're a bad person. Not, not you, you made a bad decision, that you are a poor decision, that you are a bad person, that you are the thing. It's not saying that you've made a mistake. It's saying you are a mistake. That's the kind of judgment that James is talking about in this specific verse, at this specific time. He's saying this is the kind of thing, making a character statement judgment. You are a bad person and putting yourself as a judge. So there's two fallacies here that James is trying to highlight. The first one is that we would have any kind of right to be the judge in this situation. What gives us the right to say that you're a bad person? We don't get to do that. Number two is that we would fail to see that we too are a bad person, that we would be so self-righteous as to say, man, I don't need God's grace. I, I, man, I'm doing it on my own. I'm, I, I keep the law. I do the things. I show up at church. I serve. I do here. And I don't know, sin. I don't drink. I don't do this. I don't know about that. But it's like, it's like does it make sense? Why would we be so self-righteous as to say that we don't need the same grace? We needed that grace at one point. And man, we still need it all the time. There's faithful believers that, man, they're short with their kids. There's faithful believers that, man, sometimes you slip up. Sometimes you make a mistake. You better believe you still need that same grace. And that if we zoomed in on a week in your life, that we wouldn't see you out in the parking lot giving a little, you know, out the window, somebody. We all need the same grace. And we all need to be mindful and watchful of our lives. So he's calling out self-righteousness here. And the entire chapter, he's really just been trying to get us to see, hey, when we are in control, it's messy. It's messy. It's just messy. We end up with broken relationships, a self-centered faith, which, you know, a self-centered faith is not a saving faith, right? Like, if, if, if it revolves around us, man, it's not a saving faith. It's got to revolve around Jesus. And so that we get opposition from God, we end up prideful, we judge others, and ultimately we end up being judged by the law. But when God is in control, we see our prayers are answered. We see that we get his friendship, his pursuit of us, his grace, his favor, his kindness, his protection. It all comes from this moment of giving God control and letting go of the wheel. And I don't know about you, but, but I, want, I want God in control because I want those things. I want that fruit in my life. I don't want the fruit that comes from me being in charge and me being in control. I want the fruit that comes from God being in charge. Go to verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Verse 14 says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring or what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Verse 15 says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it's sin to know the good and yet not do it. Number three, if you're taking notes, write this down. When we give him control, our purpose is found through right perspective. In these final lines of James 4, what James is really trying to highlight is two things. Number one, that life is short. And number two, that God is in control. Life is short, but God is in control. He's not trying to say, hey, don't make plans. All my spontaneous people are like, I already live this way, yeah. No, don't, I'm, not, I'm not talking about don't make plans. Like James is not trying to say it's wrong to make your five-year plan. It's wrong to plan for your business. It's wrong to whatever. Like it's not wrong to make a plan. What's wrong is to make a plan and not invite God into that plan. And so when James says here that, hey, you should say instead, instead of saying, I'm gonna go to this town for a while, make a profit, stay here for a year. He's saying, hey, if the, say this, if the Lord wills, we live this, we will live and do this or that. He's not saying to literally like verbalize this. That's not what he means. He's not like, hey, you just need to make sure you, you know, religiously say, well, if it's God's will, if it's God's will, I'll go to this college. God's will, I'll do this. If it's God's will, I'll sell the business at this valuation. If it's God's will, I'll whatever. I'll... And it's like all of a sudden it's like, no, no, that's, that's not what James is saying. He's not saying, hey, just make sure you put the statement if it's God's will in the front of your, your plan. He's saying this is a heart posture that we're meant to carry. That in every plan we make, we would consider what the Lord would say. Lord, here's my plan for my family, my plan for my marriage, my plan for my kids, my plan for my business, my plan for this, my plan for my friendship. But God, what would you have me do? God, I'm angry at this person and here's what, the, 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 what I want to do. Here's, here's how I want to handle it. But what would you have me do? Here's how I feel about what's happening in my marriage. But God, what would you have me say to my spouse? What would you have me say? It's a heart posture of never again making a plan on your own without submitting it to God. See, see, we'll see in Proverbs, it says that a man plans his own way, but the Lord directs his steps. You can make your own plans, but God is still gonna direct your steps. And so we have to understand God is ultimately in control and in charge. And, and we can grab the joystick all we want. We can try to take that ship and take it right when he wants to go left. And all it's gonna do is you're gonna bump and you're gonna crash, you're gonna make some noise and you know, get a little bruise, a little burn. But ultimately, he's gonna reroute you back where he wants to take you. So you can either try to do it your own way and have a lot of bump, a lot of crash, a lot of pain. And then you can submit to God and when he says left, you can go left. Or better yet, you can take your hands off the wheel and say, God, take my life and do with it whatever you wanna do and just sit back and enjoy the ride he's going to get you to your intended destination. He's going to take you where you need to go. And when you submit your life to him and you stop trying to do your own thing, save yourself, clean yourself up, and you stop and you say, God, take my life with it. Do with it whatever you want to do. Take control. Take the wheel. You're going to get to your intended destination. Would you stand on your feet with me? Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for everyone in this room. Father, I ask that you would speak to them. If there's area of their lives where they are trying to be in control, where you're telling them to go left and they want to go right and they're pulling hard on that joystick, God, I pray that you would give them the strength and the humility, the maturity to recognize that they need help, to recognize that your plans, your ways, they're higher, they're better than our ways, than our thoughts. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus, they would have the strength to let go, that they would have the trust and the dependency to say, God, I believe that you have good plans for me, that you're not gonna lead me astray. You're not gonna lead me to a pothole, to a place where I'm gonna crash and burn or come off the road. No, you're gonna lead us to a place of, uh, of still waters. You're gonna lead us to a place of peace, to a place of provision, a land flowing with milk and honey. These things that we see, these symbols we see in scripture, you're bringing us to, to a good place. And Father, I pray that we would all trust that you're always gonna guide us into good things good places and ultimately into a, a, a right relationship with you where we spend eternity with you in heaven because of our relationship with Jesus. Father, the areas of our heart where we want to run after wicked things, where we want to chase things of the world. Father, we don't want to be friends with the world. We don't want to, we don't want to step out on you anymore. 
Help us to be faithful to you the way you're faithful to us. May your faithfulness be something that we can model in our lives towards you. Help us to keep each other as the church accountable to faithfulness to you, God. And that we would lovingly, as it says in Galatians, that we would restore one another with gentleness when we see someone going astray or walking off or doing something destructive, that we would in love pull them back in and say, hey, be faithful. Thank you for loving our souls, for dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. As we get ready to worship, I want to do one more thing. And it's if you're in the room and you're not right with God, maybe you came in today for the first time, maybe you've been here for a long time, and, but today you realize the blinders came off and maybe today was the day your heart broke for your sin. Maybe today you realize you have been entertained by the things your Savior died for and you want to get right with God today. If that's you and you want to put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross for you by dying for you in your place, by going to the ground and being buried for three days according to scripture, but then rising again, victorious over death, over hell and over sin, it's a free gift that he offers to you to have a relationship with him and that through relationship with Jesus, this narrow path, that you would be made right with God and you could stand face to face with your father again, be reconciled in this relationship. If that's you, with every head bowed and every eye closed in the place, if you want to get right with God, would you just extend your hand right now? If that's you, just put it up nice and high. Thank you. Anybody else? That's awesome. I see your hand. Thank you. You can put it down. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for everyone who just raised their hand too. That, Father, they could pray a simple prayer in a moment in worship just by themselves that they would submit their hearts to you, their lives to you, that ask for your forgiveness, that they repent of their sin, and they would turn towards you. And Father, I pray to surround them with community, surround with friends to walk with them, so that every day they would be able to follow you, knowing that they're not alone, but they got a community of people that's following you with them. We thank you for your salvation, your mercy, and your goodness, that it's new every morning. Help them, walk with them, bless them in the name of Jesus. Everybody said? Thanks again for listening to the Oasis City Church podcast. We would love the opportunity to connect with you, pray for you, or give you next steps on your journey of following Jesus. Send us an email to info at oasiscity.church to get connected today.